Can I add my welcome to that, Stevens? Great to see you here. Thanks for coming on such a hot evening. Who watched the football yesterday with Brentford beating Manchester United? Just hands up, anyone, anyone out there? Big fans. At the back, yes, 4-0. I am really excited. I don't know about you. I did feel a bit sorry for Manu. Sorry if you're not into football. Anyway, well, today's an exciting day because it is the final chapter in the story of Jonah, read beautifully by Sam. And you're In the Bible, when you read about prophets in the Old Testament, the rule generally is that we kind of learn from their wise sayings, things that they do, things that they say, and you kind of go, yes, I should be more like that. People like Elijah and Isaiah. But the rule with Jonah is don't do what Jonah does. Read about him and do the opposite. It's one of those crazy stories, and we've been in the story for the last three weeks And today is the final part of the story. So I thought rather than me just catch up on the story where we've got to, we're going to watch a very short video. Now, I should say it is a children's video, but it's fun. So I hope you enjoy it. It's only about two and a half minutes, but it kind of catches up on where we've got to in the story. Can we show that now? Thanks, guys. Heroes of the Bible, Jonah. This is Jonah. Jonah was a prophet. That means it was his job to tell people what God told him to say. One day, God told Jonah to go to Nineveh because the people of Nineveh were doing bad things. Uh... But instead, Jonah ran away. And went to the port to board a ship. Going the other way, he was hoping to get away from God. He sailed for a place called Tarshish. While he was at sea, God sent a great and powerful wind over the sea that caused a storm that seemed like it would break the ship apart. Fearing for their lives, the sailors tried everything they could think of to save the ship. Meanwhile, Jonah was sound asleep. So the captain went down and said, how can you sleep at a time like this? Get up and pray to your God. Maybe he will help us. Then the crew figured out that Jonah was the reason for the storm. And they asked him, who are you? Why is this happening to us? Jonah told them who he was and that he worshiped the one true God who made the sea. Then he told the sailors to throw him in the sea so the storm would stop. No, why? The sailors still tried to escape the storm, but it was no use. Uh... So they asked God for forgiveness and threw Jonah into the sea. The storm stopped at once. The sailors were amazed at God's power and they vowed to serve him. Now God sent a great fish to swallow Jonah. Uh, And Jonah was inside the fish for three days and nights. Jonah prayed to God from inside the fish and God ordered the fish to spit Jonah out. God told Jonah again to go to the city of Nineveh to tell them what God had said about them. This time, Jonah obeyed God and went to Nineveh to deliver God's message. The people of Nineveh stopped doing bad things and turned to God. 
they were saved because they listened to the message that God had given Jonah. Excellent. Well, that's a great story, isn't it? That's where we've got to in the story. Jonah arrives in Nineveh and he reluctantly goes. He doesn't want to go. Of course he doesn't. Because the Ninevites were the sworn enemy of Israel. But he goes there and he only says about eight words. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He's not making much of an effort. It's literally eight words. It's five words in the Hebrew Bible. And there's kind of quite a lot of stuff missing in that message. There's no mention of what they've done wrong. There's no mention of how they should respond. There's no mention of who will overtake them. What does that even mean? And most of all, there's absolutely no mention of God. There's kind of not much effort going on here. But whatever the motives were, the people repent they respond. They recognize that they've got it so wrong. And from the richest, the, the king, right down to the poorest, the peasant, they stop doing evil. They cover themselves in sackcloth like dust sheets, which is kind of a way of showing God that they're really, really sorry. So I thought I'd give you an example of this. So Silver has very kindly agreed to be um, my, my drama man. Up you come, Silver. Now, I've given him a, a really fetching bin bag, so up you come. And um, can we give Silver a round of applause? And the people of Nineveh would take a beautiful Sainsbury's bin bag and they would put it over their head. It would have been a dust sheet or a sackcloth. <laughs> I sort of ripped a hole at the top, so I feel like... There we are. It's very fetching. Thank you, Silver, for doing this. It's very nice of you. And they would put on these sackcloths. If you come up here, and they would kneel down, and they would cry out to God. So you put your hands in the air like this. They would humble themselves and get as low as they possibly could. They would refuse food. They would refuse water. And they cried out to God and said, I am so sorry. And as they cried out, you would imagine that God would say, they're sinners. I mean, these people, they kill their enemies in horrific ways that I can't even mention. But as they cried out, and you can put your hands in the air, I think we need to hear a bit of wailing here. So, I'm so sorry. Go on, Sylvester, say it nice and loud. I'm so sorry. It's <laughs> brilliant. God heard them. God heard their repentance. And it says, in verse 10, he relented and he did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. And few, Silver is redeemed, not just Silver, the people, and God didn't destruct them. Can we give Silver a little round of applause? Thank you so much for wearing that. <laughs> and you're welcome to take it off. Thank you for doing that. But today in chapter four, as the people have repented, our really cheerful, not prophet, is absolutely furious. You know, that feeling when someone really gets under your skin and you kind of get really angry. Well, he's like that, but times a hundred. He's so angry. And it's strange, right? Because Jonah has just preached probably the most successful preach in history. 
an entire nation repents. And here he is, and he's almost yelling at God. And he says, you know, isn't this what I said, Lord? This is why I ran off to Tarshish. I knew you were gracious. I knew you were compassionate. I knew you would relent. And he's so angry, he finishes, and this is really dramatic, take my life. It's better for me to die than to live. What is Jonah's problem here? What is going on? And what he's basically saying to God is, don't show them mercy. They don't deserve it. They're probably faking it anyway. And if they did repent, they'll just go back and do the wrong thing again in the future. It's wasted on them. Don't let them take advantage of your kind nature. I can't stand it. It's not fair. And he finishes with saying, they don't deserve your mercy. We're talking today about mercy. What is mercy? I don't know what you think of when you think of the word mercy, but I think of that song by Buffy. You know the one where she sings, I'm begging you for mercy, why don't you release me? We kind of sing about it, and uh, we should sing that in church sometime. Great song. Um, But mercy is not getting the punishment that we deserve. And I thought a good example of that is, you know when you watch like an action film, and you've got the goodie versus the baddie, and they're having this battle, and you think the baddie's going to win, and then right at the end, through a superhuman effort, the goodie somehow gets the upper hand and wins, and the baddie's there kneeling down on the floor, and the goodie's got his sword or his gun, and he's won. And the baddie says something like, go on, finish me off. And the goodie says, no, I'm not like you. My destiny is to save lives, not take them, or some phrase like that. And then classically, he'll say, I'm going to show you mercy. And he takes the sword or the gun away. That's mercy. Mercy is not getting the punishment we deserve. And that's why Jonah is just so angry. He says, they deserve punishment. They don't deserve your mercy. And so he heads out of the city, and he makes this shelter It's kind of a weird bit of the story. He goes out and he's standing there or sitting there up on the hill looking at this city of Nineveh. And you can sort of imagine him. He's going, well, I know God said he'd relent, but he's kind of rubbing his hands with glee and going, go on, God, go on, God, go on, God. One of them will blatantly sin in in, in a moment, send down some like lightning from heaven and destroy Nineveh. And he's rubbing his hands and he's waiting. And whilst he's waiting, God does this miraculous thing. And all through the story of Nineveh, we've seen that God controls nature. And we've seen it with the storm. God sends a storm and we've seen it with the fish. And now God sends a plant that miraculously grows. It's a bit like anyone seen or read James and the Giant Peach? Anyone come across that? I think the plant grows overnight in that story. Well, this one, it grows in about, I don't know, I mean, who knows, about an hour over his head. A plant grows with big leaves. And Jonah's like, wow, Thanks, God. But at dawn the next day, God sends a worm, the fourth example of God controlling nature. God sends this worm that chews the plant, and so it withers. And suddenly Jonah is there with the sun beating down on his neck, and it says he felt faint. And finally, he cries out to God. And he says, oh, it would be better for me to die than to live. And God uses this plant to teach Jonah, and I think he teaches us as well. And God says, is it right for you to be angry? And he's like, yeah, it is. I'm so angry I, should, I could die. I wish I were dead. And the Lord says, you've been concerned about this plant, 
that you did not tend or make grow, should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. He's basically saying, they're helpless. They need me. And what God is saying to Jonah is, where is your mercy? Where is your compassion? 120,000 people, that's more than the population of Cambridge, the city of Cambridge, that would be wiped out. And Jonah's like, yeah, I really hope they are wiped out. And God's like, don't you care? Where is your mercy? And from this story, it's a really simple point that I want us to take home today, but it's simply this. God is merciful. Maybe we forget that sometimes. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, it says, For the Lord our God is merciful and forgiving. And do you know what? We see it through the whole Bible. We see God being merciful again and again. And I've just got three examples on the screen. So I wonder if we could put up, Sam, that picture of the three different examples in Scripture. So I wonder if people can guess. These are three great examples of God's mercy. So the one on the left, anyone call out which king do people think this was? I suppose it could be any king. Any, any ideas? Could be Saul. It's not Saul. I'll give you a clue. He's a really bad king. Really bad. What was that? Could be Nebuchadnezzar. No, begins with M. All right, he's the worst one. Manasseh, King Manasseh. If you want to read about him in 2 Chronicles. So basically, this is a great example of God's mercy. So King Manasseh, he was the king of Judah for many, many years. And he was so evil, he worshipped so many false gods that he sacrificed two of his own sons to the false god of Molech. It was horrendous. And of course, if anyone deserves to be killed, it's probably King Manasseh. And he was punished. He had his kingship stripped away from him. But do you know what Manasseh does? He gets on his knees and he cries out and he repents. And God is merciful. He didn't kill him. Not only did God restore Manasseh, he even gave him back his kingship. That's the merciful God we serve. So that's one example of mercy. There's another one on that picture, which was um, Saul. So this is Saul top right. And you probably know the story of Saul. But this is a great example of God's mercy in the New Testament. Saul's job, really, at the time, was he was a religious fanatic. And his job, really, was to find those followers of that sect who seemed to follow Jesus, those Jesus followers. And his job, really, was to find them and to arrest them and oversee their punishment. And for some of them, that was even being killed. I mean, if anyone deserves to be killed by God, you kind of think, probably Saul. But of course, on the road to Damascus, Jesus reveals himself to Saul in a blinding light. And he repents. He turns to Christ. And God uses him incredibly. He writes a lot of the New Testament, an amazing example of God's mercy. But the last example, on the cross, as Jesus is being tortured and killed in the most brutal way possible, he cries out this merciful prayer, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. It's beautiful mercy. And of course, not only was it a character of merciful, the way he spoke about them, but also it was what he was doing on the cross. He was taking that punishment that we all deserve. 
He was giving us life where we deserve death. Paul writes in Romans 6, really famous verse, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. It's mercy, it's mercy, it's mercy. And you know what, I was thinking for us tonight, what do we do with this example of mercy? And the thing that God put on my heart was that if it was okay for these torturous Ninevites to repent and receive God's mercy, how much more is God's mercy for you and for me, for the wrong things we do, but also for our friends, our colleagues, the people who are in our minds the least likely to become followers of Jesus? God wants to show them mercy too. And sure, it didn't take much for Jonah, um, didn't take much effort from Jonah for people to turn to him. And I was thinking actually for us, a lot of us with the idea of sharing something of God's mercy with our friends and colleagues, that can feel really scary. But I think the the story of Jonah is a real encouragement because his evangelism was was pretty rubbish. Like he said eight words. He only went one day into Nineveh when it took three days to walk through it. But he serves a great God who is merciful. And so even our smallest efforts can lead to God doing something incredible in the lives of our friends and the people that we know. So tonight, I want to focus on just one way that we can show mercy to people around us, and that's through prayer. It's through prayer. There's a great story of the American evangelist D.L. Moody, who committed to pray for people to come to know God. And he said, you know what, I'm going to pray for a hundred people to turn to Jesus And so he committed to pray for these 100 people. And I was thinking, I I probably don't know 100 non-Christians, but D.L. Moody did. And so he prayed and he prayed. And during his lifetime, he saw 96 of those 100 people come to know Jesus. 96. It's an incredible thing. But at his funeral, the remaining four who hadn't become a Christian attended were there. And as the funeral was taking place, those remaining four turned to Christ. All a hundred became Christians because he prayed. He prayed. And I want to suggest to you tonight that prayer works. And of course, when we pray, we get opportunities to talk to people as well. It's not just prayer. Of course it's not, but that's where we start. So, really practical thing tonight. As you arrived, I think you were given some post-it notes with a pen. And if you haven't got one, don't worry, just wave your hand. And I think Catherine's got some more at the back. Um, So we'll do that in in, in a moment. Just to say, what I'm inviting you to do tonight is to pray and ask God if there's perhaps just one person. I mean, it could be two, it could be three, up to three, but don't feel the pressure. It could just be one. But one person who doesn't know Jesus, that you really want them to know God's mercy. And I would encourage you to write that name down. And if you write it down, what you're committing to doing is to pray for that person. And I don't know, you might want to stick it in your Bible or put it by your bedside table. But this week, and maybe ongoing, be praying for that person. And the last thing to mention is that if you're here today and you think, well, I don't think I know God's mercy. I don't think I've received that. I'd encourage you to use that post note to write a prayer to God and then come and pray with me or with Stephen or with Fee. We'd love to chat to you about that. God's mercy is worth giving your life for. 
And all he asks us to do is to come and say, I love you, I'm sorry for what I've done wrong. I want your mercy and I want life with you in all its fullness. So does that make sense? We're going to write something, a name on our post-it notes, up to three, that we commit to pray for. And we're going to offer prayer ministry over here on, the, on, on, on your left, my right. Perhaps Prudence might be willing to pray for people as well over here, if that's all right, as we sing. Let's take a moment to pray. And can I invite the band to come up? And maybe you could play some gentle music as we do that. But let me, let me pray for us first. Father God, thank you so much that you have showed mercy to, to the Ninevites. And you show us mercy by not punishing us as our sins deserve. Our oh, Father, thank you that you long to show mercy to those people in our lives. And would you now, by your spirit, be speaking to us and prompting us about that, that one person or, or two or three that we could pray for. Father, may they come to know your love and your mercy. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.